From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter at Columbia University. I teach linguistics, among other things. And my book out this September is Words on the Move, Why English Can't and Won't Sit Still Like Literally. Today, I want to discuss a quirky issue that has always fascinated me. And it starts with the fact that people often say that our language English doesn't have as much grammar as other languages. And it certainly seems like it because we don't have long lists of conjugational classes and endings and assigning inanimate objects to genders arbitrarily. But the truth is that under the surface, we actually have a lot of really neat grammar. There are things that we do without effort that are as awesome in their way as people who don't have any trouble keeping track of the idea that the moon is female and the sun isn't, and so many irregular verbs that you can barely count them, etc. We actually have our fancy stuff as well. Once we know about some of it, and we can feel proud of ourselves for our subconsciously acquired deafnesses, then we can look at a grammatical issue that I think concerns us all, and maybe see it in a different way. So first, here's something that you may have never thought about. Suppose I say, little old Bill, Bill being somebody named William who's being referred to in a familiar way, little old Bill, or if Bill happens to be large, big old Bill. Notice that I would never say old little Bill, or that would mean something rather different. You certainly wouldn't say old big Bill. You'd know what I meant, but that's not the proper order. Little old Bill, Big old Bill. You've got a Toyota. It's blue and it's small. Little blue Toyota. You could say blue little Toyota, but you feel like something is a little off. There's a little earthquake or something. Or you feel like maybe that's somebody who didn't grow up speaking English. It's just a little off. Little blue Toyota is what you would say. We have a sense of what order, what kinds of adjectives go in. And it actually gets rather fine grained. And so, for example, Lovely little old green French brass knife. If there were such a thing, you would refer to it that way if you wanted to order the adjectives. Very hard to mess with the order. To say something like, lovely old little green French brass knife. No, it's not quite right. Lovely little old brass French green knife. No, it has to be lovely little old green French brass knife. And we all know that if we wanted to say it, that is the order that it would come in. It turns out that adjectives in this crazy language called English come in a certain kind of order, depending on what kind they are. And that order, believe it or not, is evaluation, then size, then shape, then condition, then age, then color, then origin, then material. Now, nobody tells you this. This isn't something somebody teaches you in school. But you listen to the language around you and you internalize it such that without even thinking, you know that it would be lovely little old green French brass knife. And if somebody said lovely little old green brass French knife, you'd think eh, a little little weird, like if there's a peanut M&M in a bag that's supposed to have regular M&Ms in it. And you can find this in long lists of adjectives all the time. So, for example, Teddy Roosevelt. I'm told it's wrong to call him that. Theodore Roosevelt. Nobody called him Teddy once referred to a president from before him, Benjamin Harrison. He was a tiny man who married twice and was afraid to touch the light switches that were installed in the White House when he was there. Once, Roosevelt referred to Benjamin Harrison as a 
cold-blooded, narrow-minded, prejudiced, obstinate, timid, old, psalm-singing Indianapolis politician. That's beautiful because you have cold-blooded, narrow-minded, prejudiced, obstinate, timid, old, and so there's the age, psalm-singing Indianapolis origin politician. Now, the psalm-singing after the old, timid, old, psalm-singing Indianapolis politician is an exception, and there are exceptions to this. So, for example, psalm-singing in there is good for weight. Theodore Roosevelt was very articulate in that way. Or you tend to say, even though evaluation is supposed to come before size, big ugly or big bad, big bad wolf. Those are exceptions and they can be talked about. But what's interesting is how closely we tend to attend to these ordering constraints. Just take a wonderful old song like the Burt Bacharach composition, My Little Red Book. We don't think about these things, but it wouldn't work as my red little book. And it's not because of the musical scansion. It's because that wouldn't be English. I just got up my little red book the minute that you said goodbye. Or, of course, this old hit. It's quite predictable that we have the color closer to the bikini than the size. It was an itchy, bitchy, teeny, weeny, yellow polka dot. So, we know how to order our adjectives. It's rather elaborate. Nobody ever teaches it to us, but we just know it. And if somebody who learned English later than the rest of us got it wrong, we could think, huh, you don't have the nuanced command that I do, because that is one of the weird, tough things about English. Start thinking about it, and it's hard. It's kind of like being told to walk in a certain way, and suddenly you become somebody who can barely put one foot in front of the other. But we have it in our brains. Here's another example. Somebody asks you, how do you mark the future in English? And naturally, we would say, well, you use will. Okay, but wow, it's much more complicated than that. I am so proud that I have this in my brain and so happy that I don't have to learn it because I know that I would never get it right. Future markings will, okay, let's say that you are, like me, of course, about to turn 32 (laughs) tomorrow as opposed to 51. So, I will turn 32 tomorrow. Do you notice that that's not really a sentence? That's not what you would say. Something like, so, what's going to be happening tomorrow? I will turn 32 tomorrow. No, that's a computer. What you would really say is, I'm turning 32 tomorrow. But you don't mean that it's the present because tomorrow is usually not the present. It's the future. So, Another way of expressing the future is to use this nominally present progressive construction. Or you could say, I turn 32 tomorrow. Notice if you put it that way and you're just using that unmarked, we often call it present tense verb, although that's complicated. That sounds dramatic. I turn 32 tomorrow. Now, you don't think about it, but it's true. You would know to put it that way. You would understand it that way if you heard it. Or... I'm going to turn 32 tomorrow. Notice how that's a little weird. And the reason it's weird is because it seems to convey some sort of intention as if you can control when you're going to turn 32. Who thinks about these things? But it's there. It's part of speaking this thing called English. So think about Argyle socks if you must. Let's try all of these future constructions. I will buy you some Argyle socks. That works if you're implying that you were asked to do it. And so you're going to do what you were told to do. Now let's try this. I am buying you some Argyle socks. That implies that you're going to do it because the person would like them. It sounds like a favor. We can't say why, but it does. 
Imagine if somebody says, tomorrow I buy you some Argyle socks. It sounds like, yes, because the date has finally arrived, upon which we have decided that these Argyle socks shall be purchased. Then I am going to buy you some Argyle socks. It sounds like a threat. All of these nuances in how we express the future. And let's not get into I'm about to or I am to. The future in English is very complicated. If you listen to people who learn the language as adults, it's one of the last things that they get because it's very subtle. It's not just will. And yet we walk around doing it without having strokes. We would never consider it to be a problem, even though we think that to express the future, you use just will. Or if you think about it a little more, you think, well, gonna. Oh, much, much more. Now, I once knew a Japanese person. She had been speaking English for three years, and she was so good, considering the gulf between English and Japanese. Her English was astonishing. But of course, when you're coming from Japanese and you're learning as somebody in your 20s, and it's only been three years, well, there are going to be some things that you haven't quite picked up. And one of the things that she used to say was when she meant, I've rented my own apartment, she would say, I now have a own apartment. And you knew what she meant, but that's not actually the way we say it. You can't say a own apartment. You say my own apartment. But think about that word own. We think most immediately of own as referring to possession. But this particular own is very quirky. It's a weird little construction, and yet we use it without effort. You can say, I have my own car. Then you can switch things around and say, I have a car of my own. But notice, you can't say, I have a car of me, or I have a car of mine. You just know. Or you can say something is very red, really red, truly red, exactly red. But with own, only very. You can say, I have my very own car, my very own bowl of chocolate pudding, my very own identity, but not my really own pudding, my truly own pudding, or my exactly own pudding. It feels like you could, but you don't, so you won't, because you can't. And that's just the way own goes. Own is weird. Even in a hit ballad, like this one from Les Miserables. On my own, pretending he's beside me. Think about that expression, I'm on my own, on your own what? And yet we know what it means. Own is a tough little bugger. And yet if you speak English, by the time you are someone of quite a young age, I'm going to toss out five based on my own personal experience, you know how to use own and you would never say I have a own place. You've just got it. This is a complicated language. And as you can imagine, I just gave three of a plethora. I've always wanted to use that word on the air. A plethora of things that I could bring up that show that, goodness gracious, we have got quirky grammar and we learn it effortlessly. So if we've got all that, then let's look at something else. How about this? Billy and me went to the store. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Because I is the subject and me is the object. You're not supposed to say Billy and me went to the store because you would never say me went to the store. Okay, let's look at this rule, because the idea is that somehow people never quite internalize it. You've got to teach it to your kids, bopping them on the back of the head, and you listen to people misusing it in the street. If anything, the idea that 
I is the subject and me is the object seems easier as a concept than this business of this subtle connotations of the future constructions and my goodness, the use of own. So why do people have a harder time getting the Billy and me business right than all those other things? Why even decidedly intelligent persons such as the president of the United States who actually is given to saying things like this. President Bush graciously invited uh, Michelle and I to, to meet with him and First Lady Laura Bush. Uh, we are gratified by the invitation. So apparently uh, the president isn't quite clear on subjects and objects. Really? Because he certainly wouldn't be talking about my red little book. I'm pretty sure he knows how to use the word own. But apparently when it comes to subject and object, that suddenly is quantum mechanics. Doesn't that seem a little inconsistent? The reason is that the rule about Billy and I versus Billy and me is different from the other three things that I mentioned in a crucial way. I is subject and me is object. Okay, if that's true, then how come if I say I and Billy went to the store, it doesn't seem right? Now, some people would say I and Billy doesn't seem right because you're not supposed to put yourself first. But I don't mean issues of politeness. I and Billy went to the store sounds not only perhaps impolite, but Martian. It sounds grammatically off. And yet I is a subject and I and Billy went to the store. Now, if it were just one wrinkle, then we just have to dismiss it. Life is full of wrinkles. But how about this? Okay, who did it? And it's Jocelyn and Brian who did it. And you point to them and you say, they. No. Who did it? Them. But I'm talking about they did it. I'm referring to them as subjects. So how come I use this object form? Who did it? And you know that you did it. You don't say, I that's absurd. You say me, but you're referring to yourself as a subject that did something. Then there's French. And no, English is not French. But in French, you can't say the equivalent of Billy and I went to the store. Even if you've only got a little French, you can feel it. Guillaume et je sommes allés au magasin. It has to be moi. They have no problem with it. And you know that the French have a certain pride in the clarity and yumminess and perfection of their language. And yet they don't treat pronouns as subjects and objects in the way that we're told English is supposed to. So that is three strikes against the idea that I is the subject and me is the object. So you might say whatever's going on with French, which we're not speaking, and whatever these little wrinkles, we have these rules because we want to be clear. But yet that doesn't quite work here, because if you say Billy and me went to the store, what else does anybody think you meant? If you say Billy and me, nobody thinks it's you or them or Rodney Dangerfield. Billy and me, it's quite clear, despite the sense that it seems to make to divide it between subject and objects in the way that we're taught, despite how well-intentioned your teachers were, despite how good it feels to master that rule, and I certainly enjoy wielding that rule that I was taught, I get it. But the difference between the rules for ordering your adjectives, for expressing the nuances of the future, 
and using the word own on the one hand. And the rule about saying Billy and I went to the store is that the Billy and I rule is a fiction. Now, for those of you who didn't turn off the podcast right there, let me stress, we have to observe the rule in formal situations. We absolutely must. We can't get away from that. We live in a society. What I'm getting at here is the idea that it really is, whether or not we have to use it in the world that we live in, a fiction. It's just something that some people made up. There was in particular a guy named Robert Loth, who in the late 1700s created very interesting in itself, pioneering grammatical description of the English language. But Loth was from a time when the idea was that Latin was the way a language should be. And in Latin, you happen to corral your pronouns according to subject and object in a very tidy way. And he thought that English should be like Latin in that way. He thought that Latin was grammar. And therefore, we needed to think of English as conforming to grammar, such as was most beautifully exemplified in Latin. And so by the 1800s, people were taking a cue from Loth's idea that our pronouns are subject ones and object ones in the way that they are in Latin and saying that, therefore, saying things like Billy and me went to the store is a mistake. That's when it starts. So, for example, there was a book called Vulgarisms and Other Errors of Speech by a certain Richard Bach. 1869, he says, we sometimes hear even the gross error of two words in the objective case used as nominatives to a verb, as him and me went. No one ever says us went, yet him and me went is the same mistake, as him and me are equivalent to us, all three being in the objective case instead of in the nominative case, he, I, and we, the sentence should be he and I went. Objective case, nominative case as if Latin is our model. And it's understandable that people back then thought so. But we know about more languages now. And we know more about language now than the people who wrote back then were in a position to. And the truth is that what we internalize when we listen to English being used around us is a very different rule than this business of nominative and objective. But it's a rule all the same. And it's actually, it's kind of neat. In English, the first person singular pronoun is me. It's as simple as that. Basically, it's me. I is an exception. It's not a matter of me is just object and I is subject. Me can be subject. Me can be object. That's what children hear. I is used in a particular situation. And that is when it's the only pronoun before the verb. So you don't say me went, you say I went. Now, you can have something between commas separating the I and the went. And so you can say I, being the only person in the room, went to the window and opened it. But other than that, the first person singular pronoun, subject or object, is me. And that's what every child grows up doing, because even though we want to say that me isn't supposed to be a subject. Remember, we all use me as a subject all the time. When we say me and Billy, or in a way that I don't think anybody complains about at all, when we say, who did it? Me. And that goes for all the other pronouns too, just as the French do. So that means that if you hear, for example, this song, it was um, a rather inferior show tune that was all over the national airwaves in 1956. I hear you could not get away from it. It was called Mutual Admiration Society. We listen to this. Do we really think 
that my baby and me was an error here? We belong to a mutual admiration society. My baby and me. Or for those of us who prefer to live in the present, here is a song by Pink. And again, based on our sense of what the rules are, we're supposed to hear her as having made a mistake. You and me were always with each other Before we knew the other was ever there But the question is, really, did she make a mistake? Or is it a matter of formality? And so I say, yes, we must observe the rule because it's become an entrenched fashion. In formal situations, one must, whether one likes it or not, say Billy and I, or perhaps William and I, went to the store. But a useful way of looking at it is that it's a matter of fashion, not a matter of error. And so an example would be little pleats on the front of pants under the belt. About 15 years ago, I decided I liked the way those pleats looked, and so I had various pants that had those little pleats. Then... One woman I was dating told me that I had to knock off with the pleats because those pleats signify that one is dad. Apparently, they gave you an elderly look. So I got rid of the pleated pants and made sure that I had flat fronts to my pants. Now, why in the world, in the grand scheme of things, do small little folds in fabric in a row under your belt signify that one's hair is getting gray and that one has reproduced and that one is no longer on a certain market. There's obviously no inherent connection, but that is the way things happen to have panned out. And so one must observe it. The pleats aren't wrong. They're not an error. They're not immoral. However, there are arbitrary symbolizations and we're just stuck with them. That's what Billy and I happens to be. Interestingly, it's been said that of all of the blackboard grammar rules that people get beaten up about, that is the one that has actually become so entrenched that we can consider it a part of the grammar of the language. It really has managed to create what you could call a change. It's the only example. But the idea that it's a mistake to say Billy and me went to the store and that the logical thing is to say Billy and I went to the store, has never yielded anything except the grand old tendency that irritates so many, which is to just hear the rule as, well, you're supposed to say I after and. And next thing you know, you have people saying between you and I, when according to the made-up rule, it should be between you and me. That's the sort of thing that Obama in the moment often is doing. I think all of us know people who do it. We may be the people because... The rule that was made up, even though we are stuck with it, isn't natural. You grow up hearing what the real rule is. My message is not that we're supposed to run around saying Billy and me went to the store in formal situations. Life is about the formal and the informal. And there are cases where we just have to buckle under. But I hope that we can hear people saying Billy and me went to the store without thinking that they're committing an error. Because actually, saying Billy and me went to the store observes the same kind of logic as understanding how to use the word own, how to use the nuances of the future, and how to order your colors. In other words, our own dear old English, which will always remain a vehicle of intelligible communication. Notice that I got all three of those constructions into that final sentence. Anyway... The show was edited by Mike Wolo. I'm John McWhorter. Thanks so much for listening and see you back here in two weeks. Bye.
Nobody like you Beats on the beat of jeans Birds on the verge of being seen No, baby Give me the keys I'm gonna try to tame your little red love machine 